Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. My name is Joshua Pugsley. Uh, I'm the youth director here at Wildwood Church, and it's uh, always an honor and a privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you all. Uh, I wasn't able to pick one passage. I mean, I did pick one passage, one Christmas passage, but really, I mean, I picked a lot of passages, guys. And uh, we're going to go through a lot of passages today, um, and I'm hoping to paint a clear picture of the amazing love, grace, and humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I really knew when I chose these passages, um, I was going to learn some lessons. I was going to learn some lessons. Because you can't really preach a sermon about how Jesus humbled himself without expecting to be greatly humbled yourself. And so I just knew it. I knew weeks ago when I chose, I was like, there's a piece of humble pie waiting for me, Lord. And I'm just, I know you're going to send it to me. So I waited for it to appear, and appear it did in the form of a messenger. You see, I've always thought of myself as a pretty nice guy. Uh, I have a, you know, from what I would consider, you know, myself, I, I'm considerate, I'm kind. Uh, I'd classify myself as generally a respectable person and all these other nice words I could use for myself. But uh, I, at least I did. I don't know if I can really classify myself as that anymore because there was a messenger sent to me by God and it came like a thundering hammer clap upon my thick, arrogant skull. A reminder of how messed up I still am. And it wasn't anything major, wasn't any major uh, huge character flaw that would disqualify me from the ministry, uh, although, how am I in ministry? Only by the grace of God. <laughs> but it was brought to my attention that I was, I had been rude, I'd been inconsiderate, I'd been altogether self-centered. And the evidence was presented to me, and there was just no escaping the truth, I was not as nice as I thought I was, and I ate the humble pie, and I apologized to my wife. Again. <laughs> she was right. I was wrong. And I thought after 10 years of marriage, you know, I'd get down this whole husband thing pretty well, and you know, I knew how to love uh, my wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But it turns out that I've got a long journey ahead of myself, and I keep on having to relearn the same things over and over again. I'm not as great as I think I am. So Lord, help us husbands, because we've got a big calling, and uh, we need Jesus' help to love our wives like uh, Christ loved the church. But we've all got a big problem, guys. If you wanted to, you could take out your phone right now, and you could uh, hit the little button to take a picture, and then you could hit the little flippy button and be like, oh, there's the problem. It's you. You're the problem. We're proud, we're arrogant, we're self-centered, and we think far too highly of ourselves. We might not generally categorize ourselves as such, but if we were to take the time to really analyze every nook and cranny of our lives, you can bet you're going to find a lot more dirt on yourself than you thought was there. Pride is like our blind spot. We can't really see it ourselves. We can't really see ourselves for who we truly are. And just like a, a blind spot can get you into a horrible wreck, uh, so pride left unchecked can have eternal consequences. 
In 2 Samuel, it says this of God. It says, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. God is ready to save humble people, not proud people. Proud people will be, will be brought down. So we better take a look at our heart and consider what it looks like to humble ourselves. The best way a person can humble themselves is by using the Word of God properly. The Word of God, it cuts open your heart with the truth. It reveals who you really are. The Word of God puts you in your place. It doesn't let you off the hook or give you a way out. It stares directly into your soul and says, you're the problem. And if I had hundreds of fingers, I'd be pointing at all of you. And one at me too, of course. The good news is, though, even though we're the problem, God's Word also gives us the solution to that problem. If you're willing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and look to Jesus for your salvation, you will be saved. So I want to take us on a journey today through a few different passages to help us explore the great humility that Christ has shown us. Let's pray and begin our journey. Lord God, thank you for this wonderful morning. It is a blessed time to come to this place, to this building that you've given us. We don't deserve it. We deserve nothing. What we deserve, we haven't received, which is eternal hell right now, Lord. But you've given us grace to let us even breathe this next breath. Lord, we just ask that you would have mercy. Lord, we ask that you would humble us, even if it hurts, so that you can exalt us. Lord, we want to be your humble children. Teach us what that is this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So our first passage is uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And it says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the end. To understand humility appropriately, we have the greatest example, Jesus. His humility is first displayed at his birth around 2,000 years ago. God brings Jesus into the world by his sovereign hand to be born of the Virgin Mary, born to blue-collar, nobody parents, born in a small town, born during a time when Rome ruled over his homeland. And this was all God's doing. 
His divinely orchestrated plan being played out exactly how he intended and as prophesied in the Old Testament. But why? Why did God choose the small town of Bethlehem for the Savior? Why not the great city of Jerusalem? And why wasn't he born in a palace? And why wasn't he born during a time when Israel had power and fortune? Shouldn't he have been born in a luxurious building? And why were his parents such weak, insignificant people? Shouldn't his parents have had some sort of political power or significance? And then you look at verse 7. Baby Jesus, God in the flesh, was placed in an animal feeding trough instead of a stately crib because there was no room for him in the inn. Can you believe it? In arrogance, one might question God saying, what were you thinking? Why did you not get your only begotten son a proper room to be born in? And if we could travel back in time, knowing what we know now, we'd go on those, we'd go to the doors and be banging on them. Okay, open up. Hey, hey, you're going to have to leave this room because the, the, the Savior of the world's being born. So once you get out, you can go be with the animals. Uh, he's coming up here, okay? He's going to be where you're at. And that's why time travel doesn't exist, guys, because we can't ruin God's plants, okay? It's scientific. Of course, God planned all this. Obviously, he knew there was going to be no room in the inn. It wasn't a surprise. God knew his son would be born in obscurity and put in a manger where animals eat. God planned out everything exactly how he wanted it. Do you see it? Jesus, our Lord, humbled himself, put on flesh, and was born like a common child. Now let's fast forward a bit through Jesus' early life. Scripture doesn't have a lot to say about Jesus' life up until he was 30. There's a few little things here and there. But we do know this. From the time he was born until he started his ministry at age 30, Jesus lived what we would consider very average, mundane, obscure life. Jesus was raised in the unimportant town of Nazareth, so unimportant that one of his disciples, Nathaniel, would say of Jesus coming from that town, can anything good come from Nazareth? He learned carpentry from his father, and that was his job up until age 30. So if you have a blue-collar job, you're in good company, guys. Come on. Jesus. He was a blue-collar worker. And remember, Jesus only lived to be 33 years old. That's very young. I'm 34 right now. So, wow, that's pretty incredible. And then he was crucified. So God chose that his son would work a little job in a little town, making little money for 90% of his life. 
Little job, little town, little money, 90% of his life. It was only the last 10% of his life that Jesus was going around preaching to crowds and doing miracles, and even then he wasn't living the high life. He was being persecuted by the religious leaders. He was being resisted. They were always plotting to kill him. Man, they really wanted him dead. Jesus chose to give up his rights and his privileges to come down from his heavenly abode and to put up with all the junk that we have to put up with in this broken, sinful world. And not only that, but he chose to do it while living the life of a normal person. Right? <laughs> Why didn't he show up and be like someone famous and powerful? No. Blue collar, carpenter, small towns, small life. Crazy. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus became poor, lived a poor life, so those who believe in him can receive the greatest treasure, eternal life. The next thing I want to take us to is found in Matthew 11. This takes place towards the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In this passage, Jesus is preaching to the crowds, and he says this, Matthew 11, 28-30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus knows that people are exhausted and weighed down by the brokenness of this world and their own sin. If people are willing to be completely honest with themselves, they would admit that they have fallen woefully short of the life they know they ought to live. Romans 3.23 makes it clear that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Our hearts are darker than we want to admit. And everyone is just trying to figure out how to deal with this weight. Do we just, you know, put up with it and just let it slowly crush us? I mean, that's depressing. Maybe we can lighten our load by being a better person and, and trying to be really good. But try as we might, nothing seems to take the weight away. And the Bible makes it clear that our sin is too heavy for us to carry. And that no matter how hard we try to cast it off, we're enslaved to it. In the end, we are wicked. That's right. You and me, everyone in this room, Everyone ever born on planet Earth besides Jesus himself, wicked. We need someone to save us from our wickedness. In steps Jesus, who desires that all who are sick and tired of their sin come to him. The phrase Jesus used to describe himself as lowly in heart can be translated as humble. Jesus doesn't say he's cruel and ruthless and he's going to destroy everyone. 
He doesn't say to the crowd, stop being dummies and get your act together. Jesus says he's gentle and humble, and he's ready and willing to take the soul-crushing weight of sin off your back and give you rest. And you know, so many powerful people in our world would just balk at the idea of being gentle and lowly in heart. But here, God in the flesh is showing us what true greatness looks like, and it's nothing like what we see of the rich and powerful of our world. Not even close. Flash forward from here a couple of years, and we're on to our next scene. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Now when they, draw, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was, being, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So King Jesus, creator and ruler of all things, rides into Jerusalem, humble and on a donkey, in fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah, and no earthly king dreamed, would, would ever dream of going into any, any piddly little village or town or big city or any place just riding on a donkey. That would be an embarrassment. That'd be like president of a country riding around in Toyota Corolla. Okay? That's what I drive. So I like the car. But, you know, I, if I was president, I'd probably drive Corolla. But... You can't imagine that, though. <laughs> but here we have it. The supreme ruler of the universe pulling up to Jerusalem, the holy city on a donkey, not a fine horse, not a golden chariot, not surrounded by angelic hosts, just him on his donkey and his 12 completely normal, not very cool disciples. Are you seeing a pattern here? God continues to reveal his power and majesty in the humbleness of his son. Four days after this scene, we get to the Last Supper in John 13, 1 through 5. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
Feet during Jesus' time were gross. I mean, feet today are still kind of gross, but not, a, not like Jesus' day. Foot washing was a common part of the culture in that time. People walked around in sandals. That was the common footwear. Now, livestock, uh, beasts of burden, riding animals were along the road, and there would be, you know, animal dung on the road because of this. And, you know, it's already dirty and gross anyway. So you can imagine that someone walking around all day would naturally get their feet pretty nasty and would need them washed. And what makes matters even worse is when you're sitting around these tables in Jesus' day, you got to remember they're really low to the ground and they would like recline on like couches and cushions and things and they'd have their feet like pointing behind them and so their feet are all exposed. They're not like hidden under the table. And so they're all just sitting around this table at the Last Supper with these dirty, nasty feet. Now, if you were invited into someone's home during this time, the host was supposed to ensure that everyone's feet were washed. And it was, once again, just a kind of a nasty job. It would have been done by a servant or maybe someone considered less important. On this particular occasion, for some reason, there was no one there. I don't know what the reason was. I mean, oh wait, is God sovereign over all things? Oh, he is. So I guess maybe Jesus already knew what he was going to do. There's not, there wasn't going to be anyone to wash the feet because Jesus was going to wash the feet. So they're all in their places, eating this meal. The disciples aren't thinking anything, though. They're not thinking, oh, everyone's got dirty feet. Maybe I should be the one to get up and go wash everyone's feet. No, because they wouldn't do that because they were too busy, number one, arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Oh, you're, I'm the greatest. No, John, you're not the greatest. It's definitely me. Oh, and, then they're, and they're just too busy. And plus, if they got up and washed the other people's feet, then that would be them lowering themselves and everyone else. And they don't want to do that because they're trying to be the greatest. And so Jesus, in the midst of the meal, he gets up, puts on the towel, and he goes and he washes the feet of the disciples. God cleaned gross, smelly, grime-covered feet of arrogant, prideful men. And on the next day, he would die for them. Which takes us to our last scene. Mark 15, 25-32. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers on his right and on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that, he might, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Here is the ultimate display of humility. Jesus who lived a loving, kind, gentle, humble, perfect life was beaten, spit on, nailed to the cross, being ridiculed by everyone around him. He hung up there, gasping for breath, 
with blood dripping off his body from the beatings he had taken. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there watching her 33-year-old son die. And for her, it was probably only like yesterday when she could think back to the time she laid him in the manger. Now here he was, suffering a humiliating death. And what's more terrible and brutal than the suffering, the physical pain, was the wrath of God that was being poured out on him. Jesus, as he bore the weight of sin on the cross, God's wrath was being poured out on him. And instead of calling down his angel armies to destroy his enemies, instead of using his power to escape the suffering and the wrath and the torment, he endured it until his last breath when he said, it is finished. And what did he finish? And Jesus had paid the full and final price of sin. The sacrificial lamb had poured out his lifeblood for a bunch of ruthless, heartless, egotistical, self-obsessed, self-righteous, totally depraved people. I mean, who does that? Who dies in such a horrible way for their enemies? Who loves their enemies enough to die for them? At all. And then take the guilt of their enemies upon themselves? No, no normal human being. Only God would do this. Do you see the humility of Christ on display through all these scenes? From his virgin birth to his final breath, Jesus came to save wicked people by suffering and dying for them. And the reality in all these scenes is that Jesus didn't have to do any of this. But he chose to. He chose to because first and foremost, he loves God the Father. And secondarily, because he loves us. Christ humbled himself for the glory of God and the good of us. Philippians chapter 2 makes as much clear where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas is a celebration of God putting on flesh. He was born for the cross, and his whole life of humbleness was leading up to the greatest act of humility of all time, that God would die for sinners like you and me. 
And this great act of love doesn't leave Jesus in shame, doesn't leave him buried in the tomb. The rest of the story, we know he was raised by God from the grave, and now he sits exalted at the right hand of God. And one day, all people will bow the knee and confess him as Lord. Jesus, the one who humbled himself, is also the exalted one. Jesus, in his humility, has changed the world forever. And I really love how James Allen Francis puts it. In this quote, you may have heard it before, but it's worth repeating. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, he grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And 19 wide centuries have gone, come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that ever were built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. So what should be our response in all of this? Well, hopefully you're already responding. If you haven't responded yet, I pray the Lord softens your heart, but your response should be awe. The fact that Jesus humbled himself should blow your mind. Honestly, I just don't get it. You can study for 15 hours and prepare a sermon, and I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> Even after trying to comprehend this reality, it's going to take eternity, guys. How is it that Jesus, the creator of everything, would humble himself in all the ways that he did, and ultimately on the cross. The depth of this reality should really just bring us to our knees. God is so much grander, so much kinder, so much more loving and gracious than we give him credit for. How awesome is our God. Once we're struck with awe, and we're on our knees, it's exactly where we should be. The humility of Christ should annihilate any ounce of pride left in us. How can we walk around in life thinking 
that we are anything compared to Christ after looking upon his life. We are nothing. We believe we're too important to do this thing or that thing, and yet the most important one came as a suffering servant. We think we're, we're good, we're pretty good people, yet we're so often unwilling to sacrifice for others when Jesus sacrificed his own life. We think we're strong, yet we can't get through a week without complaining and grumbling about all these different things that aren't going perfectly in our life. And yet Jesus was silent as he accepted his role as a sacrificial lamb. The gospel message isn't meant to make you feel good about yourself. It's meant to show you how good God is and how much you need him. It's meant to take out your legs from underneath you Destroy your pride and your self-righteousness. It's meant to break you so you can be humbled. And so after being humbled, you can be exalted and given eternal life. Christ, the glorious one, came to save sinners like you and me. We desperately need God's mercy and grace. We desperately need God to humble us. This humility, if it's truly taking an effect in your heart, if it's not false humility, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change you. It's going to lead you to do something, and that's called repentance. Without humility, you won't repent. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to God. It takes humility to repent, because you have to be willing to confess that you're a sinner. You fess up when you mess up, right? We can't pretend that we're all good to go and that we don't struggle. I'm just tired, and I'm so grateful that, that Wildwood isn't like this, but I hope we're, we're not like this in some ways. Maybe I don't see it, but like, I used to do itinerant preaching, and you walk into some churches, and people are just putting on a show. You don't have to come to church with a, with a smiley, happy face on, guys. You don't have to feel like you have to come here and be like, everything's great, and my life is perfect, and I never have struggles with sin. No. I should make a song. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's good to recognize your brokenness. It's good to humble yourself. It's good to turn from your sin and turn to God and not pretend. We all have a lot of room to grow. We definitely do. We just need to take the time to humble ourselves before God to see the areas he's trying to work in us. Every day should be a day of repentance. It's not like we repent. I repented yesterday. I don't really need to repent today. No, every day there should be some work in our heart. There should be some things the Lord is revealing to us, some, some humbling taking place. Oh, Lord, you know, I should probably be a little bit different in this situation, or I should probably not be so uh, quick to respond in this situation. Whatever it is, little things, big things, every day God should be working in our heart. We don't like to admit that we're wrong, though. 
We don't like to say we're sorry because of pride. We like to have excuses. We like to say, well, you know, the reason I snapped is because I'm just tired and because you pushed my button, so it's really your fault. That's just pride. Humility says, you're right. I'm wrong. I sinned. I have no excuses for it. Forgive me. Get really good at doing that, guys. Get really good at saying that. Me too. In the end, having an attitude of humility that leads us to repentance will make us more like Jesus. And the more we're like Jesus, the more joy and satisfaction we're going to have in life. For some of you today, humbling yourself means finally making the decision to give up the act. Stop pretending like you have it together. Give up the notion that you're good inside. No one has has it together, and no one is truly good but God. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all desperately need Jesus to save us from our sin. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as your only hope for eternal life? Look at his great humility on display. And consider the vast love that God has for you, that he would go to such lengths to save somebody so unworthy. God is love. He is ready to redeem the vilest of sinners if we would only humble ourselves before him. Don't let your heart harden with pride in this moment. Humbly surrender yourself right now and you will find grace at the foot of the cross. Brothers and sisters, I'll leave you with this. Let us be willing to take the lowly places as Jesus did. Let us be joyful in the lot that God has given us in this life as Jesus was joyful. Let us not look to glorify our own name, but the name of the Father as Jesus did. Let us be willing to become servants of all as Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Let us be willing to lay down our own lives for the glory of God as Jesus did. And let us humble ourselves as our Lord humbled himself. Lord God, we come to you now. We thank you for this time. Lord, again, we pray for humility. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our pride and our arrogance. Forgive us of all the ways that we have thrown the grace you've so lovingly given us right back into your face. Lord, we know our only hope is to fall on our knees and surrender to you daily and say, God, help us. Lord, humble us, humble Wildwood Church, so that we might declare your great and glorious name to the ends of the earth, Lord. Change us, God, by the power of your Spirit. We praise your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, 
follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.